And a very good evening to you. Welcome to the Catholic View. I'm Sheila Pirsch. Thank you so much for being here with me. Coming up in today's broadcast, we take a look at Earth Day as well as climate change action. And we also focus on youth matters. So that's coming up a little bit later in the broadcast. But for now, though, do stay tuned as I'm about to bring you some of the stories that made headlines in Africa and beyond. Listen to Radio Veritas, 576 AM, for a change. And in your headlines this Friday evening, Pope urges Christians to announce the gospel. Zambian Catholic Church condemns xenophobic violence. And appointment of Global Water Monitoring Panel. Good evening once again, I'm Sheila Pirish. We begin with church news. During his morning mass at the Santa Marta residence, Pope Francis urged Christians to have the courage to announce the good news about Jesus, just like the apostles who testify to Christ's resurrection, even at the cost of their lives. The Pope's words came during his morning mass at the Santa Marta residence, where he said announcing the gospel, intercession and hope are the three key dimensions of a Christian life. Today's date marked the 43rd anniversary of the religious profession of Jorge Mario Bergoglio. In his homily, Pope Francis reflected on the three linchpins that he said should mark the life of a believer, announcing the gospel, intercession and hope. The heart of this announcement for a Christian, he explained, is that Jesus died and rose from the dead for our salvation. He said this is what the apostles did before the Jews and the pagans, and their testimony came even at the cost of their lives. The Pope pointed to the biblical account of how Peter and John were brought before the high priest after the healing of a crippled man, noting that the two apostles courageously refused to keep quiet and not proclaim the name of Jesus and his resurrection. Noi non possiamo tacere. This, he declared, is the announcement of our Christian life. Turning next to the question of intercession, Pope Francis reminded his listeners that just as Jesus reassured his apostles at the Last Supper, Christ is praying for us and preparing us a place in the house of the Lord. Jesus prays for each one of us and intercedes for us by showing his wounds to the Father after the resurrection. This, he said, is Jesus' prayer and his intercession on our behalf. Concluding his homily, Pope Francis touched on the third dimension of a Christian life, hope. A Christian, he declared, is a man or woman of hope. He said all the church is waiting for the coming of Jesus, saying this is Christian hope, and he advised believers to ask themselves, how strong is their hope and their belief in Jesus' intercession and the announcement of the good news? I'm Susie Hodges. The Secretary-General of Zambia Episcopal Conference, Father Cleofas Lungu, has confirmed that the Catholic Church issued statements condemning xenophobic violence in the country's capital, Lusaka. According to Father Lungu, the Catholic Church has challenged the government of Zambia to be more proactive and to do everything possible to bring an end to this unfortunate trend of behavior and restore peace. 
On Thursday, President Lungu made a spontaneous visit to the foreign national seeking refuge at Kalemba Hall of St. Ignatius Catholic Church in Lusaka. A major boost has been given to efforts to protect the world's second large tropical rainforest thanks to a 200 million US dollar deal between the Democratic Republic of Congo DRC and international partners. Daniel Johnson reports. The deal, which was wrapped up at the UN in Geneva on Friday, aims to address forest degradation in the country and to promote sustainable development. It's part of the UN-led Central African Forest Initiative, known as CAFI, and the Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation Declaration, known as Red Plus. Here's Priya Gadraj from the United Nations Environment Fund, speaking from Goma in the DRC. It's also important because it's the first letter of intent being signed between CAFI and a country of the Central Africa region, and the largest one ever concluded on the Red Plus in Africa. So it's also sending an important signal. Similar deals have been signed in recent years with Brazil and Indonesia. The African and European unions, the United States, China and other world powers are demanding an end to disputes that have held up the peace process between South Sudan's government and rebel forces. In an ultimatum released on Thursday, rebel leader Rick Mashar is expected to return to the capital Juba no later than April 23rd. Should he fail to adhere to the ultimatum, the matter will be referred to the United Nations and African Union Security Councils. Mashar was due to return to Juba this week to be sworn in as vice president and form a transitional government with his rival, President Salva Kiir but expected arrivals on Monday and Tuesday fell through due to last-minute disagreements over the number of troops accompanying Mashar and the weapons they would carry. And finally, 10 heads of state and government have been appointed to sit on a high-level panel on water by the UN chief Ban Ki-moon and the World Bank Group president Jim Yong. Jocelyn Sambira has more. The panel, launched at the World Economic Forum in Davos last January, aims to mobilize effective action to ensure the availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all. The panel members will serve for two years. Globally, more than 2.4 billion people lack access to improved sanitation, and at least 663 million do not have access to safe drinking water. Experts project that the world may face a 40% shortfall in water availability by 2030 due to the effects of climate change. And those were some of the stories that made headlines in Africa and in the church today. You're still on Catholic View right here on Radio Veritas, 576 AM, otherwise on 870 DSTV Audio I'm Sheila Birch. Thank you once again for being here with me. Coming up next, we take a look at Earth Day and Climate Change Action. April 22nd marks International Mother Earth Day. Over one billion people are coming together to celebrate this day. 
This year, Earth Day coincides with the signing of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, a legally binding document aiming to limit global temperature rise to well below 2 degrees Celsius. In his encyclical Laudato Si, Pope Francis urges us to participate in the care for our common home. Rufino Lim, a Franciscan friar from South Korea and an assistant at the Friars General Office for Justice, Peace and Integrity of Creation, says the document teaches us to listen to the poor and to the cries of the earth. Vatican Radio's Sophia Pizzi spoke to Rufino Lim about the Paris Agreement and about the need to take action in combating climate change. I think this agreement is not sufficient because those were just words. They didn't promise anything. They just said the word, and then there was no compulsory alliance there. They just, okay, we would reduce the emission of greenhouse gas and, and so on and so forth. So we should be really honest and clear on this. And then religions like Catholic Church or Buddhist groups, along with the civil society, we should push the governments and the economical big names to change the, their policies and their attitudes towards the, especially to the poor and to the earth and climate. What are your hopes for the future? I hope the world changes. world uh, gets changed totally. The whole structure is so evil, we can say. They need to be transparent, especially to those people who are living in the forests or in the rural areas uh, who don't have enough you know, resources or money or the tools to change the world. People should listen to them and to see the reality of their poverty. Then we could change our hearts and our minds, our visions. Then we could dream of some new structure, which is just and also sustainable. We should not cling to the idea of development. It is about life and also it is about peace, I think. And that was Rufino Lim, an official at the Franciscan General Office for Justice, Peace and Integrity of Creation. The world is entering what's been described as a new era in which to take action to reverse damaging rises in the planet's temperature. This Friday, world leaders will gather at the United Nations in New York to officially sign the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, which was approved by the international community in the French capital last December. Cassie Flynn is the climate change advisor for the UN development program, UNDP. She's been speaking to Daniel Dickinson. Certainly, we've entered a new era of action on climate change. Since the Paris Agreement was adopted in December, and now when it will be signed on the 22nd of April, countries have more momentum than ever before to address climate change. And there's an immense amount of urgency. We're seeing impacts far and wide on climate change. And, and most recently, we saw Cyclone Winston, for example, hit Fiji in a devastating impact. Last year in the Caribbean, we saw Hurricane Erica hit Dominica. And that, uh, the prime minister said, wiped out half of their GDP in just a few hours. These impacts are real. They are happening now. And it's time for action now. Is the political will across the world strong enough? Yes. In Paris, we saw more heads of state than ever before gather on a single day in history. This showed an unprecedented level of commitment to address climate change. And even for the signing ceremony, this important next step now after they adopted the Paris Agreement, we expect more countries than ever before to sign this agreement. Where do we need to see more political leadership? 
I think we can all do our best to increase ambition. We're certainly seeing a lot of innovation around the world from some of the smallest economies and then from some of the largest economies. And I think everyone, we must put our best foot forward to be able to address climate change holistically. And how can you ensure that promises made by world leaders, by particular countries, are actually followed up? Mm -hmm. This is a key question. And certainly in Paris, we had a COP, um, this climate change conference, this conference of the parties or the COP. This came through with a lot of very important decisions. And now the negotiations are going to carry forward this year into Marrakesh in November. And this is where countries are really going to decide the rule book for the Paris Agreement. Um, what are the ways that countries will be held accountable for these targets that they've all put forward? Will countries be self-regulating? This is one of the questions that countries have to answer. Certainly, we saw unprecedented commitment with almost every country in the world putting forward a national target by the end of last year. And now what happens with these targets, how they will be implemented, how they will be measured, how they will be verified, how they will be reported on, are questions that all countries will have to negotiate through the course of this year. The climate change skeptics have still not been silenced. What do you make of that? You know, the climate skeptics, you know, they sometimes have an important role to play to make sure that all of our science is robust and that all of the decisions we're making are robust. But there is an overwhelming certainty that the climate impacts are happening. 97% of scientists out there agree that climate change is real, it is happening, and we have to do something about it. So while we can listen to the skeptics, I think we can't let skepticism slow us down. It is a time for optimism. It is a time for forward-looking, future-looking momentum. And I think that's what a lot of countries are already doing. And that was Cassie Flynn, the climate change advisor for the UN Development Programme, UNDP. Unless people's basic needs are met, the planet is in risk of imploding. That stern warning comes from American actor Forrest Whitaker, who was recently named an advocate for the Sustainable Development Goals SDGs. The 17 SDGs will drive global efforts to address the root causes of poverty by the deadline of 2030. Dian Pan caught up with Forrest Whitaker, who was at the United Nations on Thursday for a General Assembly thematic debate on the SDGs. The Academy Award-winning actor explains why it is critical for this generation to achieve the goals. When we look at uh, what these goals are, we're seeing actually a list of, of needs of our society, a list of needs that need to be fulfilled in order for us to move forward. I, I can relate it a lot of times to some of the work I do in conflict resolution in recognizing that when needs are not filled, when needs are not met, that all types of conflicts occur. And unless we're able to do that, our planet itself will implode because the needs of the people are not met. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to get a chance to be involved in sort of just talking about the roadmap, talking about the list of things that need to be done in order to meet the needs of society in order for the planet to be healed and for us as a society to find what I hope will be uh, enduring peace. And now speaking of those needs and of course your own work in conflict prevention, mm -hmm. perhaps you can give us some examples of some of the work you're doing through your foundation on the ground, um, which also supports these UN goals. Yeah, um, they work in, in, in parallel because these are like truly human needs. Even the infrastructure issues are human needs. We have a large uh, 
program in the South Sudan. We've been there now for about three years. We have trained a group of individuals as conflict leaders, as mediators. They have now been adapted by the state to be the mediators for the state itself. And um, this group uh, went through a large series of trainings for hundreds and hundreds of hours for the last couple of years. So that component of education is, is living and alive with them. But we deal with education too because we build literacy centers. We've built now in that particular state, I'm talking about Eastern Equatoria State, five literacy centers of which 200 people at least a day go to each one of those literacy centers and learn from kids to, to grandparents, you know? And at the same time, that helped build, uh, in a way, the infrastructure because we deal with technology. When we train our, our youths, they also go through a big component of ICT training uh, helped by Ericsson, one of our partners. And so um, that infrastructure we're putting inside of, also inside of all of the, uh, the learning centers that we've created, and we treat uh, computer literacy as well. And then we look at the infrastructure of the country, and there are barely any roads in South Sudan. Um, but we are responsible for working and, and building a few of them now. We have brought together rival tribes that are really in conflict over access, over ability to be able to bring water, over ability to move their animals, and brought them together to build the roads. And so these roads also have, have uh, helped with the infrastructure. And then all of our trainers are going inside the villages to train individuals in all the villages of that particular state. And we've decided very, very clearly that we have to have a, a gender equality issue uh, addressed there. And so we've pretty much got about 40% of the people that we're training inside of the villages to be women, which is a very high rate for South Sudan. So there's a, a number of different things that, that we're dealing with that relate to the SDGs or to the Sustainable Development Goals and fulfilling needs that are happening inside of that community and that country. And now you've spoken about the importance of everyday people taking action to achieving the goals. And what do you believe that your presence here at the UN today will accomplish? Well, I had the opportunity to be able to address the leaders. And I was hoping that I would be able to discuss with them their job inside of this, of like really being advocates and pushing forward the agenda of these, of these SDGs. At the same time, I wanted to encourage them to inspire the, the people in their own countries to make this agenda become a reality and bring the common people together because it's the common people who will be able to make this happen. They have to be behind it. They have to be willing to do certain things, whether it's dealing with uh, sanitation, and, you know, which deals with health issues, which deals with uh, water issues, which deals with uh, children, mortality. Uh, you know, um, so there's so many different issues that need to be addressed. And the individuals have to do that. And once, we, once they become educated, they'll be able to implement some of these things and they'll also be able to make some of the things happen in their own communities, in their own environments. You know, sometimes people just need a, a link to information. Information is a very powerful thing, just to even know that they need to wash their hands after a certain thing or uh, that they can make their crops grow if they do this or that they can bring water from this source to do that. All of these things, and, but the individuals have to do it, those people who will implement them. They just need somebody to be able to, at times, uh, offer just the information, you know? And the SDGs, at the moment, are a list. They're a list that we're, we're looking to implement. And so people need to have that information of what needs to be implemented to, to, to heal society. And uh, then we'll move into a new time where we're actually living in a, a manifested environment where all these things are happening in our lives and this conversation will become mute. And it'll always morph itself because society will always change. and There'll always be certain checks and balances as, it, as, a, as an organism, as meaning the earth itself. But hopefully those changes will be of a new situation. And that was Academy Award winner, actor and advocate for the Sustainable Development Goals SDGs, 
فارس ویتکا This is the Catholic View coming to you on Radio Veritas 5760 We take a look at abduction of Ethiopian children and Somali youth. On Thursday, Pope Francis sent a message to young Argentinians who are undertaking an expedition to the North Pole to raise awareness about threats to the environment. The young people have with them a copy of the encyclical Laudato Si, as well as an olive branch, the symbol of peace. A 16-year-old girl from Tanzania has urged world leaders gathered at the United Nations in New York to take action to reverse climate change. Gertrude Clement addressed the international community at the opening of a ceremony to sign a climate deal agreed by over a climate deal agreed by over 190 countries in Paris last December. She was there to represent the youth of the world. Joshua Mali spoke to Gertrude ahead of her speech in, gen- in the General Assembly Hall. I'm here in New York to represent children and young people all over the world about the issues concerned climate change. So you will be speaking at uh, the signing of the climate change agreement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll speak and address the readers to take action about climate change. So beyond the signing, you want them to take action? Yeah. Why is it very important to you that they not only sign, but they also take action? Because when they will take action, they, it will help for fighting against the climate change and to keep the children safe. You're from Tanzania. Have yeah. you seen some of the devastating effects of climate change? Yeah. What kind of things have you seen? Soil erosion and death to the other children. How do the children die? Because of heavy flooding. Flooding. Yeah. Okay. And security of livelihood and food. Food security yeah. and livelihood. Yeah. Uh, So these are things that you have witnessed while working as a child reporter, a young yeah. reporter for yeah. UNICEF. Yeah. Have you done some stories about these things in Tanzania? Yeah, uh, we, we have visited many places which is affected by climate change and environmental pollution. Then we post to the digital map so that people around the world can learn about your experience. Also report to the, our live radio and TV program every Saturday. So you, you seem to be very passionate about climate change. Yes, because I'm also, I see also the effect of climate change. So Are you excited about the fact that you're going to be the one speaking on behalf of the youth? Yes, it's my first time, so I want to see the... Readers from different nations take action about climate change. The Archdiocese of Seoul in South Korea has named 48 young students as young missionaries of mercy with an aim to convert themselves and to share the joy of the gospel with their peers.
with a mission to help their peers in every circumstance of life for study, human, material and spiritual difficulties, a group of students in middle and high schools in Seoul have been named Young Missionaries of Mercy. It is the initiative launched by the Department for Vocations and for the Youth in the Archdiocese of Seoul as a way to encourage and empower young people in the year of Jubilee. The brutal abduction of more than 100 children on the border between Ethiopia and South Sudan is a huge issue for both the countries and families involved. That's the view of James Elder, who is based in East Africa with the UN's Children's Fund, UNICEF. He also condemned the mass killings in the same incident, which reportedly took place just inside Ethiopia. Believed to have been carried out by armed cattle raiders from South Sudan. South Sudan has been in the grip of a civil war for more than two years, which has left millions displaced and tens of thousands dead. Matthew Wells asked Mr. Elder to describe what happened. There was a raid, or indeed several raids, that occurred on Friday uh, in the Gambella region of uh, Ethiopia, which is to the west of the country, so there's a border there. And from everything that we hear from colleagues on the ground uh, in Ethiopia and in South Sudan, it was that there was a large number of attackers, most likely cattle raiders from South Sudan, who entered into Ethiopia and then undertook what was a very, very violent raid. I think that cross-border cattle raids are, are not at all uncommon in South Sudan either now in times of great crisis or indeed historically in, in better times in the country. What certainly seems abnormal in this one was the, the scope and the level of the violence and, of course, this kidnapping of large numbers of children. We're talking about dozens of children who've been abducted. Is, this, is there a pattern of this in previous uh, incidents? If this was, as many reports say, the Merle tribe, tribesmen from South Sudan, there have been abductions in the past, but nothing to this scope, nothing reported at least to this scope, where most recently today um, Ethiopian government sources said it was around 102 children were abducted, which is, of course, is, is an enormous number. Five is a big number, but 102, when you think about the extended families of those people who are now at a loss and grieving and probably displaced because of the scope of the violence anyway, is a huge issue for both those families and, of course, the the, the, the government uh, in both countries. I mean, why would children be taken along with cattle? Are they seen as assets in the same way? Short answer, yes. Uh, more standard answer that you'd have to get into, you know, kind of anthro anthropological discussion on the Murley tribes people. But the abduction of children, particularly such a large number of children, is virtually un unreported pr prior to last week. The relevance to South Sudan beyond that these people came from there is really just, the, of course, that the, the country is crumbling and that after more than two years now of conflict, <clears throat> things would be would rarely have been more desperate in country. And that may, of course, feed into this type of, this type of raid, the severity of it. Certainly, South Sudan is now is now a hotbed of untold atrocities against women and children across the country, really, in three or four major states, constantly see horrendous violations of, of children, be it abducted, be it murdered, be it forcibly recruited. As the country has crumbled with this type of complete lack of any respect of human rights and the most vulnerable citizens, then you have an attack like this. Now, they may be related in terms of, as I say, the decline of safety and protection in the country and certainly I think it's something that UNICEF has been saying time and again that 
that any safety for anyone in South Sudan, and it seems here with with the border region, that you know we, the, the basic things are required. Peace agreement needs to be implemented. You need safe, uninhindered, immediate access of humanitarians. These kind of things have been called for for at least a year now. As the brutal civil war continues, it seems there's also a growing refugee crisis across its neighbouring national borders and children must be, must obviously be at the centre of that too. Well, exactly. And I think it's something that people too easily forget, just the burden um, that has been shouldered by neighbouring countries and heavily in these countries, neighbouring communities. So the communities in this western Ethiopia region, the communities in northern Kenya, uh, the communities of northern Uganda who have taken very large numbers of refugees of South Sudanese um, into communities and into those regions. Unfortunately, South Sudan sits at the cusp at the moment where, whereby if the peace agreement can be implemented and if the, the rival parties can can um, again look towards development, that, that then of course there is hope for many of these people and for the safe return for so many South Sudanese who just five years ago were celebrating independence and who do want to return and who do want to start start a country. Unfortunately, that is still some distance away. And is there any role for UNICEF to play at this stage in terms of trying to recover these children or to uh, lend support to those efforts? Yeah, yes, always. I mean, we have people on the ground in so many areas and particularly in South Sudan. These are very remote areas of the country, of course, but UNICEF was very quick to lend its its support to the government of Ethiopia, both in terms of any requests that the government may have, and of course, once we hope the children are find, found, then in terms of you know reuniting them with family, psych- psychological support, um, and all of the, all of those things that UNICEF really has been doing for children in South Sudan for the last two and a half years. In an exclusive interview with VOA, Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed said lack of opportunity is to blame for the number of young Somalis boarding unsafe boats in hopes of reaching Europe. Somali President admitted that his government is partly responsible for the influx of refugees to Europe. He said the country's economic hardships is driving the youth to take risky journeys. Over 70% of Somalia's population are youth under the age of 30. Hence, the government can't employ all of them, but it is busy trying to restore peace that will enable the youth to work in the country, said Somali's president, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed. And this is how we come to the end of today's broadcast of the Catholic View, a program produced and presented by Sheila Birch for Radio Veritas. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoy the rest of your Friday and do have a blessed weekend. We will be back again with Catholic View on Tuesday evening. Until then, God bless you and ciao, ciao. I'm Sheila Birch.